Good morning. We come today to worship together, to be together here in this hall and across time and space. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm Matthew Johnson, the senior minister here at the Unitarian Universalist Church in Rockford, Illinois. Our worship team this morning also includes my colleague, the Reverend Joyce Palmer, Tim Anderson, our music director, as well as our worship associate this morning, Shiraz Tata. I'm going to give a thanks to Keith, who's filling in at the last minute for Autumn this morning at the sound desk and tech desk. Leading our religious education program outside this morning is Warren Smith, our religious education assistant, as well as some wonderful volunteers, Amy and Kim and Bill. And we would love your help in this area. The folks who are volunteering, uh, how many of you have taken some time volunteering with the kids outside? Yeah, it's fun, right? It's a great time. Um, you play in the woods with the kids and then learn about all kinds of stuff and they have a great time. And you can watch the service later on the stream. Uh, so we would love some more regular volunteers if you're willing and able to help with our children outside, um, either the younger group or the older group or either one, depending on need. Please see Miss Warren after the service. Um, find her down by the playground on the side of the building, and she would love to get you connected and signed up. So welcome. Welcome to you here with, here with us, us in person and those of you watching online now or later. For those of you in person, some reminders, masks are required for all unless you're a worship leader when you're leading your element. Uh, for those of you who are new with us in the last, uh, it, you haven't been here in the last couple weeks, I should say, uh, we a few weeks ago realized that we needed to take a break on singing out loud. So Tim sings, you are invited to sing in your heart, you are invited to hum along with the hymns. For some of the songs that we do each week, we have some simple motions, which I'll teach you when it's time uh, to do those. And that's the way that we're trying to keep everybody as safe as we can here. Um, so I invite you to sing in your heart or to hum. If you are at home online, sing to your heart's content as loud as you possibly can. The neighbors won't mind, I promise. You should have heard the karaoke that was two doors down from my house last night. Trust me, you all sing great compared to what that was. Oh boy. 
If today is your first day worshiping with us online or in person, we are very happy that you are here. If you didn't get a chance already to check in with Reverend Joyce or the folks at the membership table, please do so on your way out so we can get your information and be in touch about all the events and activities here at the church. Are you ready? Let's begin. We're gonna sing our hymn of the month with joy we claim the growing light. And we'll put the words up here. I invite you again to either sing in your heart or to hum along. You can stay seated. You can get up and move if you want to. And uh, Tim will sing. <clears throat> gather today for worship. All over the world, you are joining us. We who are leading are here on this land, which is the homeland of the indigenous Ho-Chunk people and was a gathering place for many local nations. We acknowledge the injustice of the theft of this land by the settler Canolian state and acknowledge that our community includes descendants of both those whose land was taken and those who took it, as well as those whose ancestors or you yourself arrived well after these events. We are invited to learn this true history, to form more just relations, and we seek to move forward toward justice and repair. We are humbled to be on this sacred land. We gather today for worship, and as we gather, we join in our sacred ritual. The flaming chalice is the symbol of our faith, a beacon of truth, a fire for justice, a warmth for the soul. As Matthew lights our chalice here at the church, let us speak together the covenant of our church. Love is the spirit of this church, and reason is its guide. To dwell together in peace, to seek truth and freedom, and to serve human need. This is our covenant. Now let's maybe sing softly together or just listen to Tim as he sings our chalice response song. of a troubled world of violence and division. We come to this place set apart for the renewal of vision. We gather in this circle of love and justice, this circle of care and compassion. We gather into this community of mercy, holiness, and health. Great Spirit, bless us now in this moment of worship with your commanding vision of a peaceful and reconciled world. Come, let us worship together.
today is called The Tree in Me by Karina Lucan. The tree in me is part apple, part orange pear almond plum, part yum, part shade, and part sun. The tree in me is seed and blossom, bark and stump, branch and trunk, and crown. It is bird, squirrel, worm, and bee. And because there is a tree in me, there is wind and rain and dirt and a river with fish and a sky, too. The tree in me is strong. It bends. It has roots that go deep down to where other roots reach up toward their own trunk, branch, crown, and sky, too. Because there is a tree and a sky and a sun in me, I can see that there is also a tree in you. I hope that you are subscribed to the Kairos, our weekly newsletter. Be sure to read it for announcements about upcoming events and activities. This week, I want to highlight Climate and Faith, a class which Reverend Matthew will lead via Zoom as part of our Wonderful Wednesday series. This is a two-session Wonderful Wednesday program. It's on September 29th and October 13th at 7 p.m. Mark your calendar for both. The first session will focus on UU approaches to the climate crisis, and then Professor Brian Wagner from Rock Valley College, an expert in this field, will join Reverend Matthew for the second class to explore interfaith responses. We now take up an offering to support the work of justice and mercy in the world. 80% of what's collected today will go to the Unitarian Universalist Service Committee, the UUSC. UUSC is a nonprofit, non-sectarian organization advancing human rights together with international communities for grassroots partners and advocates. Thank you for your generosity. You can write a check or place cash in the basket as it comes around. You can also place money in the offertory box at the back later after the service. You can also text the number on the screen to make a gift online. Thank you. The offering will be given and most gratefully received. 
As I reflected on faith and the climate crisis, I was reminded of how in Zoroastrianism, the religion I grew up with, human beings as the purposeful creation of God are seen as the natural motivators or overseers of the seven creations. The faith endorses the caring of seven creations, sky, water, earth, plant, animals, humans, and fire as part of a symbiotic relationship. Zoroastrianism sees the physical world as a natural matrix of seven creations in which life and growth are interdependent. As I live my life now as a Zoroastrian and a Unitarian Universalist, I'm constantly reminded of the important interdependent web of existence of which I am a small part. I'm so grateful that I've always been in awe of the natural world. It helped make my transition from India to this country easier. The beauty of this earth is everywhere for us to see, and it is our responsibility to ensure that it will always be so. These cannas in front here remind me of Jamshedpur, where this tropical flower grew in my parents' garden. What is extra special about having these grow in my own garden here in Rockford is that the hummingbirds love them. And we have a pair of beautiful hummingbirds that come to them quite regularly. Having the time to be mindful of these beautiful birds has been wonderful indeed, or maybe my making the time to do that. Having the time to do this feels like a privilege at times. At the same time, I know that stepping outside feels like a spiritual practice to me. It grounds me as I start my day, it helps me focus as the day continues, and as I ponder important questions. I feel blessed that our UU faith encourages us to ponder from a place of love rather than of fear. As I listened to NPR yesterday, I asked myself, how do we take care of things so that there is clean drinking water in Detroit and other cities in this country and the world? Why does race and power determine what we pay attention to and what we don't? I really did not realize how climate change most adversely affects those who are most economically disadvantaged until we discussed this at church many years ago with Jason and Rebecca after one of Matthew's sermons. These issues are truly intertwined, and we have so much to learn from each other. I was glad to read something from the UUA that said, the Unitarian Universalist Side with Love campaign connects all of our justice work. It asks that we choose love over fear as a spiritual practice, that we stay spiritually grounded, that we work with generosity, humility, and courage, and that we develop concrete skills to combat the damage of climate change. Did you know that the children at Spectrum School here and in our own Woodsong program are developing such skills as part of their time at school? Actually, even our little pre-K and older kids' class is doing that right now outdoors. The little ones do this in many ways, and the middle schoolers at Spectrum organize the recyclables and use them in their makerspace. They all collaborate with our own Allison, who helps them with composting their waste at their farm. Yesterday, as I sat admiring the beautiful prairie, that is a legacy left to us by members of this church, and maintained by many of you, and listened to the wonderful stories during Marty Blomgren's memorial service about the ways in which she and her family made sure the next generations enjoyed nature and the great outdoors, even in winter. It reminded me of the importance of taking such steps. Writing to our legislators about the importance of addressing climate change, which UUANI emails make very easy for us to do, and supporting many in our community and our state and this country involved in this important work is also, of course, another step we can choose to take. 
As Rabindranath Tagore, a great poet much loved in the state of Bengal and in India at large said, the one who plants trees knowing that they will never sit in their shade has at least started to understand the true meaning of life. Please enjoy listening to Tim as he sings, We Celebrate the Web of Life. If you are home, you are welcome to join us singing as loudly as you like. Sorry, I was ready for what's in the order of service, so oh. I need to shift here. Here we go. I appreciate that even when I got a typo in the order service, Tim can just turn to the right song and make it happen, so thanks. Two readings today. The first is an excerpt from an article uh, by Umar Afran entitled, What's the Worst That Could Happen? It was an article written after the most recent 2021 International Panel on Climate Change report issued earlier this year. Afran writes this. Read between the many lines of the nearly 4,000-page IPCC report, and you will see that it actually tells five different stories about the future, complete with their own little narratives. Here's the backdrop for these stories. The planet is undergoing a massive, uncontrolled experiment, rapidly revealing what happens when 2.6 million pounds of carbon dioxide per second, and still rising, are added to the atmosphere. All of humanity is participating in the experiment, whether directly contributing to it or feeling its impacts. It's increasingly clear that many of the factors that helped bring the world to the current point will not persist in the future. Unchecked population growth, a massive surge in coal mining, too few clean energy options. With the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement, countries agreed in principle to limit warming this century to less than two degrees Celsius. It's about four and a half degrees Fahrenheit, by the way, with an additional target of staying below 1.5 degrees Celsius. These goalposts didn't exist when the IPCC put out its last comprehensive report in 2013. After honing down on how the planet will respond to carbon dioxide, the next step is to figure out how much carbon dioxide will be emitted. To do this, scientists have imagined how humanity will progress from here on out. They've considered population growth, advances in clean energy, and an observer effect in which alarming climate and science spurs action to limit greenhouse gas emissions. Their five stories are known as 
Shared Socioeconomic Pathways, SSPs, SSP, each of which makes different assumptions about shifts in policy, economics, and technology. I'm going to read a portion of the first pathway to you, which is called SSP 1.1, SSP 1, 1.9, 1.9. This scenario has been described as taking the green road. It's the most ambitious and hardest to achieve storyline. It envisions a gradual but concentrated shift toward clean energy with few political barriers in adapting to and mitigating climate change. This entails a rapid drawdown of fossil fuels, widespread deployment of clean energy, increasing energy efficiency, and lower resource demands. By the middle of the century, humanity will zero out its contributions to climate change. This scenario also assumes inclusive global development that lifts all countries. It imagines improvements in education and health that would help stabilize population growth, with a total, total declining slightly to 7 billion people. To create this future, humans would likely need to achieve global philosophical shift away from the pursuit of economic growth and toward improvements in human well-being. While every scenario in the new IPCC report will likely overshoot the 1.5 degrees Celsius target, under SSP 1.9, global temperature, average temperatures would eventually decline before, below this level by 2100. It's also worth noting that 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming is no picnic. It's still warmer than the world is today, leading to effects like increasing the frequency intensity of heat waves and extreme rainfall. Thus ends the first reading. You can read the rest of the article and about the other SSPs if you want to look that up. It's online. The second reading is a reflection and prayer by my colleague Ashley Haran entitled First, Fierce Urgency. My four-year-old daughter has taught me this lesson. When a child wants to derail business as usual to curb the hubris of adults who dare believe in schedules and plans and productivity, one fierce little body and one clear piercing voice strategically applied to the right pressure point will change the course of the day's events. My comrades in organizing have taught me this lesson when a silenced people want to be heard, to raise from dry bones a living, breathing dream of new ways of moving, being, incar incarnating freedom, one small, tenacious group whose hearts beat in rhythm, rising shoulder to shoulder against the inevitable, will bend the arc from impossibility to hope. Our young climate leaders are teaching us this lesson when the grown-ups and the old movements are too slow and as the sea levels rise and the hurricanes rage and the migrants flee and the corporations profit, one generation, both young and silenced, refusing to accept the inheritance of doom, will take toward the streets and move us toward life. Blessings upon them as they teach us, organize us, beckon us in and call us out. May their first fierce urgency and uncompromising clarity show us the path toward healing and freedom and hope. Blessed be, Ashe, and Amen. The last reading I'm going to share with you is responsive reading, so we'll put those words up on screen. These are uh, adapted from the Ute people uh, who live in Utah and Colorado. Uh, an important story about the Ute people is that uh, in the early 1900s, and late 1800s, when the denominations of the United States uh, parceled out the Indian nations to each denomination for those white folks from the East to go teach folks, often a practice was incredibly destructive to Native communities, the Unitarians were assigned to the Utes. And uh, our ineptitude at doing this, and the sort of lazy approach of the people we sent meant that the damage to the Ute people was relatively minor. <laughs> because the Unitarians who went just didn't have their heart in it and were kind of, you know, it was kind of a punishment to be forced to leave Boston in 1820, 1850. But that's no excuse. 
uh, for our participation. We've made apologies to the Ute people for the actions of our ancestors, which they have gracefully accepted, and our relationship has been built over the years based more on mutuality and understanding rather than colonial superiority. And so when we read these words, we think of that, that history and think of what they have to teach us rather than what we thought we had to teach them. So I'll read the part in regular type and you the part in italics. Earth, teach me stillness as the grasses are stilled with light. Earth, teach me caring as parents who secure their young. Earth, teach me limitation as the ant which crawls on the ground. Earth, teach me resignation as the leaves which die in the fall. Earth, teach me to forget myself as melted snow forgets its life. I invite you to join me in the spirit of prayer and meditation. Great spirit of life and love, wondrous power of many names and no name at all. Be with us in our remembering of kindness, in our memory, our sorrow, and our honor. Hold in tender mercy the family of Marty Blomgren, whose life we remembered yesterday here at the church. Her husband, Steve, and their daughters and granddaughters. Hold in tender mercy all those gathered here in person and across the world who come to worship seeking peace and hope and strength for the living of our days. Make tender hearts that are hard. Make open minds that are closed. Make generous bodies that are closed in on themselves, including our own. May we reject the inheritance of doom and cultivate the garden of hope and possibility. For you call us to be people of hope, people of faith, and people of will. That the future is yet unmade, that we might contribute to building the kingdom of love, the beloved community, the kinship of all beings in the here and the now and the generations to come. Be with us. Amen.
she won't come back, she won't come back again. She won't come back, she won't come back again. Do what you can gently, do what you She won't come back, she won't come back again. Love what you see gently. Love what you see gently. Love what you see so gently. She won't come back, she won't come back again. She won't come back. She won't come back again. Oh, mountains, rivers, valleys. Oh, my heart, walking so gently. She won't come back. She won't come back again. She won't come back. She won't come back again. She won't come back. She won't come back again. She won't come back. She won't come back again. She won't come back. She won't come back again. She won't come back. She won't come back again. I read a remarkable book last year, a book called The Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. It's fiction set in the very near future. It begins with a village in central India and a heat wave that won't break. The wet bulb temperature reaches 35 degrees Celsius and people in the millions die from the heat. Now, what's a wet bulb temperature, you wonder? Any of you already know what a wet bulb temperature? A couple of climate folks know this. You take a thermometer, you wrap it in wet cloth, and then give it a few minutes and see what it reads. Normally, the water will evaporate and take some of the heat with it, bringing down temperature. So even though it might be, say, 95 degrees Fahrenheit, 35 degrees Celsius, the wet bulb temp might be much less. But if it's too humid, and too hot at once, water will not evaporate. Well, Ben, when it's really hot and humid and you don't evaporate. Evaporation is how we cool off too, not just thermometers when we sweat. So if you can't evaporate, then you cook from the inside. Kim Stanley Robinson's book opens with this and it is brutal to read. We talk about floods and storms and refugees and forest fires and all those things are horrible, but a wet bulb temperature at 35 degrees Celsius that lasts for a few days in the wrong spot in the world would cook from the inside thousands, millions of people. This is the nightmare that keeps climate scientists awake at night. Well, it's one of them. Water level rise four or seven feet puts a lot of cities underwater. Changing rain and drought patterns make a lot of hungry people. Cascading effects like methane released from melting permafrost is something that's already happening. And cascading effects like exponential growth are hard to stop once they get going. The book was terrible, by which it was excellent and terrifying. It described in detail the crisis, heat and flood and hunger and war, refugees and all that and what happens. The wet bulb chapter, which is how it opens, is the most searing in my memory. But it doesn't leave you there, thank God. It imagines a future, a new future, one not yet seen, not yet created, but possible. The future in the book is something like SSP 1.9 from our reading, maybe something even better than that. 
In the book, the wet bulb deaths are the catalyst for global change, what the article called observer effects. People change for something more than we have yet imagined. Well, something more than some of us have yet imagined, not something that is more than imaginable. Some visionaries, some scientists, some social thinkers, some engineers, some ethicists have imagined what scenario one looks like, how we get there. They've sketched it out, what must be done, what can be done, and have actually given us a picture of a better world than the one that we live in today. Not just less bad than scenario two, let alone scenario four or five, which I didn't read for you, they're really bad. We don't want to do that. And things even in story one get worse before they get better. But in 100 years, if we do what these folks suggest now, things could be better then than they are now. And not just with climate, with our whole lives. But it requires a kind of revolution, a revolution of science and of the economy and a revolution of faith. We cannot be timid. This is on my mind and heart, and I know it is for some of you, too. I first heard about what was then called global warming, I'm sure, when I was in junior high. We started calling it climate change, maybe when I was in college. But the science then was pretty well understood, and that was actually a long time ago. Now we call it the climate crisis, which tells you that we have not done enough. And when I say we, I mean governments and corporations and nations of the world. I do not mean, first and foremost, the individual you. There's too much individualism in the way we talk about climate, all about what you are doing, what's your personal ecological footprint. I mean, sure. We all should do some things personally. That's not useless, that's helpful. I will tell you now quickly the most effective things you can do. Ready? It's a short list. Eat less red meat, request 100% renewable energy portfolio from your utility, and if you are in a financial position to drive an electric car or a hybrid, do so. <laughs> There's plenty of other things, but don't go down that road because this is not really an individual problem. It doesn't really have an individual solution. It is a social problem, a global problem, a problem of collective action and the value of the commons. It's a question of what matters, a question of our obligations to our sibling human beings, of the blue boat of our planet and this earth, our home and the creatures we share it with. It's a question of time, actually, of short-term thinking and long-term thinking. It's about what we leave for the generations to come, our children's children, which is, you guessed it, a religious question. This is my thesis today that we will never get to scenario one, the 1.9 degree Celsius option, the story where our great-grandchildren say they did amazing things to save the future. We are so glad. We will never get to that story unless we bring a vibrant, urgent, and powerful faith commitment to the work. This is what became so clear to me as I read The Ministry for the Future, the book by Kim Stanley Robinson. He means ministry as a governmental department, sense of the word, he's British. But of course there is a double meaning, the sense that our work must come from our hearts from our souls for the sake of what is most true, most real, most imminent, and most transcendent. This ministry vision, this theological vision, is, however, grounded in science and reason. Reason is our theme for the month, and reason requires us to attend to science, and this is all based in science. It sounds ambitious, a revolution. And we're used to thinking if science is relatively conservative, as cautious to make grand claims. We have to test our hypothesis and so on and so on. But when your house is on fire, you don't use a drop of water and see how it goes. You turn on the hydrant. It's time to turn on the hydrant. It's past time. It's time for fierce urgency and a relentless effort. 
With the International Panel for Climate Change report and this fiction book, The Ministry for the Future, call for includes a shift from an economic growth model to a human thriving model or human well-being model. You'll hear it called that sometimes too. Instead of measuring and planning an economy to increase growth forever and ever, you plan and measure human thriving. Are people able to live without hunger in safe neighborhoods with joyful and meaningful things to do? Do they have work they enjoy? Do their children learn and grow in healthy ways? What's the average lifespan? Actually, the median lifespan is a better question. What's the infant mortality rate? What's not the average income, but the median income? Economists and ethicists have created models of human thriving that we can use, things we can actually measure. We can measure just as well as we can measure GDP or the Dow Jones, and outcomes that we can work toward. But policymakers have to shift their focus, and this is religious, right? Because it is about what human lives are for. What are we for? And people of all religious stripes, Jews and Christians and Buddhists and Zoroastrians and Sikhs and pagans and, well, everybody who takes their faith seriously already believes that human lives do not exist for the economy. The economy exists for human lives. We affirm that productivity and production can be idolatrous values. The purpose of life is to love and wonder and build community and tend to the generations. So we need to lend our values and join with interfaith values in this economic conversation to insist that too often we are measuring the wrong things because what we measure is what we work for. And we need to work for a different goal, that all people may thrive. Economy which all people thrive in doesn't do resource extraction in poor neighborhoods or poor countries. Doesn't employ planned obsolescence as a strategy to get you to buy another one. It sets limits on the wealth of individuals and corporations and sets a floor below which we do not let human beings fall, for they are our siblings, all of them. When people talk about this new economy, this economy that puts people and the planet before profits and plunder, folks often can't imagine it. We're so used to what it is. The best answer to that, I think, are these words from Ursula Le Guin, which we'll put up for you to see the graphic. We live in capitalism. Its power seems inescapable, but so did the divine right of kings. So did the divine right of kings. And I love the illustration with the tree has grown through the crown. The revolution from the divine right of kings to Republican democracy, and then the evolution from Republican democracy to something more like real democracy, which, let's be clear, remains very tenuous in the United States and around the world, was not just politics. It was religion. It was about people who asserted that human beings made in the image of God were capable of ruling themselves, that God did not actually appoint kings. That was just people saying it was. And that power was created for and should be used to serve human beings, a government for the people, of the people, and by the people, a phrase Abraham Lincoln borrowed from the Unitarian minister Theodore Parker, which was based deeply in Parker's theology, that people were citizens, not subjects, that they were sparks of the holy divine, not worshipers of dusty creeds, and that the holy was about freedom, not the consecration of power. And so it will take a theological turn to make the great turning, the great turning that we need now to happen. Alongside the work in ecology and economics and social science and the rest, we need work in art and culture and faith to assert a new set of values that all people and that life itself on this earth is worthy of care and protection and honor, that poor people and refugees are not expendable, that we must care not just about the now, but about our descendants, about those who will come long after us, 
and that this is how we must measure our policy choices and how we must decide what is worthy and good to do. And that's possible. One thing that's in the book, I didn't put a lot in the sermon because I didn't totally understand it, is there's a way to do financing based on multiple generations and it totally shifts like how you do money. If you're into that, you should read the book. But let me say, making a theological turn toward the planet and all its life and all its people, toward sustainability and thriving and balance and earth love, isn't just about what values we articulate. It's about the stories we tell and the songs we sing. It's about how we feel and where we find beauty and what we ritualize and celebrate. I love the beautiful story that Lindsay chose for us today, the tree in me. The tree in me honors the tree in you. Rooted like a tree, line, the tree is strong, it bends. Right? Swaying like a tree to be resilient in the storm. Forming an ecosystem around it like a tree does, the roots going down to mingle with other roots. Honor the wisdom of the earth, not a thing to conquer, but our home and our teacher. Earth, teach me caring. Earth, teach me courage. Earth, teach me to remember kindness as dry fields weep with rain. In the cactus and the quail and the barnacle and the great blue whale, we are called to walk gently, to lay gently, to live gently. It's about the stories we tell and the songs we sing and the things that we celebrate. The tree doesn't grow larger forever and ever and ever and ever. Its success is not about how quickly it expands. A tree that goes very fast and is weak will be toppled over. But it's about how much it can bend in a storm. And about this time of year, in the next couple of weeks, when the light and the dark are even, when the tilt of the earth makes a new season come, the tree begins to turn bright, beautiful colors. Actually, it's natural colors. The green is from the sun. And then when the time comes, it will let go. And then pause and conserve, and then begin again. Not up and onward forever, a cycle. These metaphors invite us to consider a different set of mythic structures, a different set of stories, a different way of living. Live like a tree, rooted but bending, creating homes for others, nourishing the soil, spreading beauty. Or live like a river, flowing, nourishing, or like the wind sharing the seeds of life, bringing sun and rain to the world and so on. The invitation fundamentally is to tell stories that place us as part of the earth, not above it. Vulnerable will not come again and connected to all that is. In the book, The Ministry for the Future, Kim Stanley Robinson describes some of the theological and economic revolutions that the people whose values and whose stories and whose rituals shift first. Early adopters of a new way of living and being. These early adopters are key to the story, and most of the narrative about the story is about these early adopters. We can be these early adopters. Some of you already are. Sometimes it means recovery returning to the ancient holidays of these seasons of balance and ecology and simplicity, living gently on the land, gently and gently on the land. Sometimes it will mean new things, telling new stories, great cosmology stories, great evolution stories, great interdependence stories, or creating economic and social structures which are radically different from Western individualistic capitalism. Early adoption, telling new stories, being faithful, all this is necessary. So is taking every incremental policy victory we can get along the way. I was thrilled this week when Illinois passed the Climate and Equitable Jobs Act, which the governor signed into law on Wednesday. 
The law makes Illinois the nationwide leader on clean and renewable energy policy. It's fantastic. It also keeps, uh, yeah, it's something to be cheerful for. It's a huge victory in the right direction. It keeps the Byron nuclear plant and others open, which without nuclear power, we never achieve our climate zero goals in the short run. We've got to have it. It's not enough, but it is a lot. And it is a lot to be proud of. And I'll say very clearly, that happened because of members of this church, in particular Steve Hall and Rebecca Quirk and myself, who got on the phone to Dave Vella and Steve Sottleman on a regular basis. We already knew we had Maurice locked up. <laughs> on a regular basis to make sure that they stuck with it through all the twists and turns in Springfield and all the negotiations, and they did. And we helped make that happen. So say thank you to Steve and Rebecca when you see them and pat yourselves on the back. One vote in the Senate was what it got over the finish line. That was Steve's vote. I dream of a world where all people live with dignity where the planet thrives, the ice doesn't melt, and the humidity doesn't kill you in your own body. To get there, to get there, we need it all. Individual action where possible, incremental policy victories, victories which have their own cascading effects, right? Each win makes it easier to get another. And we need a faithful, inspiring vision one that can be shared with people of many faiths, vision that leads to a new heart, a revived soul, a restatement of what we are for, who we are with, and where we live on this blue-green marble spinning in space, this blue boat, our home, all people, our companions, our heart for justice and balance and thriving, our vision of faith, of love, that will transform our world with love and care. For our children's children, for our planet, let your imagination soar. Let your faith come alive. Let your body root like a tree and blow like the wind. And let us begin again today. I invite you to sing in your heart, to hum along as Tim sings Blue Boat Home, which is 1064. The words are up here if you want to sing in your heart and follow along. Holding me, hail the great wind. 
infinite sea before me. Sing the sky, my sailor's song. I was born upon the fathoms. Never harbor or port have I known. The wide universe is the ocean I travel. I promise that when we get the all clear to sing again, we will put that song early on the list. Shiraz will extinguish our chalice, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we carry with us until we are together again. The words for our benediction are from the prophet Isaiah. The, The metaphors of the earth rejoicing and us in harmony are found in every religious tradition and in the Hebrew prophets. Isaiah writes, for you shall go out in joy and be led back in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall burst into song and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. We're gonna sing our song benediction. Uh, Most of us have learned some motions for this, which I will stand up here and do. You can follow along as you sing in your heart and Tim sings out loud our song benediction. Oh, our way is- 